The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. All right, as you're finding your way to your seats, I'd like to ask that you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. If you've been with us over the past several years, then you'll know that each summer we take a break from whatever New Testament book we are currently studying, and we preach through a section of Genesis. This now marks our fourth summer in Genesis, and we are setting our attention this time on the character of Joseph. So the first summer, we did Genesis 1 through 11, creation through Babel. The next summer, we covered Abraham and his life. And then last summer, we covered uh, Isaac and Jacob and the bulk of their lives. Today, we are going to be covering Joseph. We're going to do that from now until the end of August. The narrative of this man's life is one of the most astonishing and invigorating, in my opinion, in the entire Old Testament. And I cannot think of any extra-biblical story that is a more compelling storyline. There's love and there's hate. There is vengeance and forgiveness. There's a hero who is brought low, but he endures and is exalted. There are themes of shame and honor and betrayal and devotion and sexual scandal and sexual purity. Joseph, his life is a fascinating roller coaster. His father, in his father's house, he went from being the favorite son to being a forsaken slave. In Potiphar's house, he went from being the family accountant to being falsely accused. And in the hands of the Egyptian government, he went from being the prisoner to the prime minister. This man's life is absolutely incredible. But most importantly, woven through all of this storyline is the overarching point that God is sovereignly working all things together for a glorious purpose. These 14 chapters are all about the gospel. And I am so excited this summer that we are going to have time provided the opportunity here to explore all of this together. So please follow along as I begin reading at Genesis 37 verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun 
The moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in his mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their, father's, their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. 
Lord, I ask that today that we would have a heart that is emblazoned with fire, that is encouraged and uplifted and sparked because of what we are learning from your word today. I pray, Lord, that this would not just be some novella, some history, some small story from the past that we think of fondly, but this would be something that points us to Christ, that causes us to be passionate about what we are called to do because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, I pray that today this sermon would bring conviction and direction and enlightenment and encouragement. I pray, Lord, for those who don't know Jesus Christ in this room, that because of what we hear today from your word, they would be broken and they would come to repentance and faith. And Lord, I pray for those who know you, that this picture of godliness, this picture of suffering, and truly this picture of Christ would cause us to be much more worshipful in our week that we would not leave this place and just go back to the daily grind, but that we would live such a life that we recognize your sovereignty in all things. And Lord, I pray that we would see the gospel clearly and live it out daily. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Anytime you arrive at a passage that's this long and this complex, there are certainly going to be a variety of aspects worthy of our focus. However, there is always one main point in the text that is presenting what is of utmost importance, and the Holy Spirit has designed the Scripture in such a way that we are always called to fix our eyes on that intended primary purpose of the text, whatever it may be. So this morning, we are going to consider four points, each one of them significant. I would say every one of them quite important. But the closer we get to the conclusion of the sermon, the closer we will arrive at the center of the bullseye. We are trying to aim at the heart of this text, and the deeper we get into the sermon, the closer we will arrive at that. Our four points of the morning are going to be this. Parenting, prejudice, providence, and prelude. Let's start with parenting. The Bible has a lot of ways of teaching us things. This includes many teachings on how we raise our children. Sometimes the Bible tells us things by direct commands or with straightforward information. Consider the Proverbs or the Prophets or the Epistles. If you read through those, there's just a lot of direct statements about what you must do and what you must not do. But narratives and histories teach us as well by showing us what we are called to do by the consequences of righteousness and the consequences of sin. It shows us how God's promises and God's order cannot be thwarted. And that is what we are going to see today. In our text this morning, we see the negative results of bad parenting. Look with me at the way the sins of the past three generations all came crashing down on Joseph in this chapter. First of all, let's go all the way back to the great-grandfather. Let's go all the way back to Abraham. Remember how Abraham promised was promised a son? He was promised by God that there would be an offspring, that his offspring would be as numerous as the sand of the shore or as the stars in the sky. Yet what did he do? He took Hagar and had a child with her. Not the child of promise, but had a child with the slave woman. And then that son, whose name was Ishmael, grew up. And notice in this chapter, it is the Ishmaelites who actually take Joseph and sell him into slavery in Egypt. Abraham's sin resulted in consequences for Joseph. Isaac is known for a lot of sin, but one of the worst is that he played favorites with his children. We know that he loved Esau noticeably more than he loved his son Jacob. And as such, 
we see that Jacob hated this, but he did what most people do. He did exactly what his father did. He hated the fact that his father played favorites, but then when Jacob has children, what does he do? He elects a favorite in Joseph and shows favoritism towards him. Favoritism is not only lazy parenting, it is sinful parenting. It is teaching your children that your love can be bought and it is conditional. There are many reasons why a child might be your favorite. Maybe they're the one that's the most like you. They look the most like you. They sound the most like you. They act the most like you. Or maybe it's because they're the most well-behaved and you don't have to discipline them as regularly as your other children. Or maybe because they're the most intelligent or get the best grades at school. Or maybe it's because they achieve all of the things that you hoped you could achieve in your childhood for whatever reason. They're all garbage reasons. There is no way that we should ever have a favorite in our children. Fathers, we have an incredible responsibility. Happy Father's Day. Our job is to show our children what God looks like. That is the way that God created the universe. God designed our world to work in such a way that if we do our job right, we should be a dim but clear picture of how God loves unconditionally and how he leads in righteousness and how he guards us from evil. And we will walk, we'll talk a lot more about what this looks like with Jacob's favoritism later on. But let's just be clear. Isaac's sin of favoritism resulted in consequences for Joseph. And there's a lot of sin that we could point out in the life of, jo of Jacob. This guy, as we have already noted, was not only playing favorites, which we'll see under the microscope in a bit, but I want you to remember that this guy has modeled a terrible kind of life for his kids. Jacob is a liar. He consistently led a life of deceit. He is a cheater, a schemer. And as a parent, he is incredibly passive. Last summer, we learned a lot about the ways that Jacob became a passive parent. Notice we see it again here in this chapter. It says in verse 2, And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Even in this story, when Joseph uncovers the sin of his brothers... Jacob seems to completely overlook it. Now, we don't know exactly what this sin is, but I'm just going to share with you what a lot of scholars speculate. Because of what we learn in the next chapter, which I'm not going to get into this week, and because of what we learn from what took place with the Shechemites, it seems likely that the bad report that was given was that the brothers were involved with prostitutes of the surrounding region, which was a grave sin with many consequences. Yet, what does Jacob do? Nothing. Jacob's sons learned from their father. Jacob lied to his father by wearing a coat, remember? Jacob took Esau's coat and wore it. And then what did he do? He killed a, a goat and he prepared it to give to his father. Jacob lied to his father with a coat and a goat. And then notice what happens in this chapter with his own sons. They take a coat, and they kill a goat, and they take that coat, and they scrape it around in the blood, and they hand it to their father, and they deceive their father with a coat and a goat. They've learned from Jacob. Jacob's sin resulted in consequences for Joseph. Today, like we've mentioned many times already, is Father's Day. And I was just speaking to Gene. Where are you, Gene? He's around here somewhere. There we go. He's up in the booth. I was talking to Gene the other day, and he said, you know, dads are completely overlooked and underappreciated in our culture. And he's absolutely right. 
almost every representation of a father that you will see on television or in movies or even commercials makes the father out to be either lazy or ignorant or violent or obnoxious or a Homer Simpson-esque blend of all of the above. But what you have to understand is that this is one of the ways that the world, the flesh, and the devil is attacking what is designed to be God's representation of himself here on earth. But this has often led dads to accept the role of just being a breadwinner, just making the money and leaving everything else to the wife. We are taught that that is unacceptable. Our culture says this is good. It's okay. Just be irresponsible. Be the fun dad and, and let the wives be the ones to balance out the kids. I do not think there is any greater social issue in our culture today than abortion. And I believe the, the number one culprit of the problem of abortion in our country are dads. First of all, the dads who don't want their children. And secondly, the dads who do not teach their sons sexual purity that result in quote-unquote unwanted pregnancies. If fathers were raised up and living a godly, righteous lifestyle, then the issue of abortion would completely vanish. That's a side note. Dads. The tone that you set in your home is going to ripple down for generations. Notice what happened here with Joseph. Yesterday, I was thinking about this, and I looked this up. I found a website that's really cool. Uh, it estimates how many descendants that you're going to have over the generations. And what they do is they take some information about you and your parents and your grandparents and how many kids they had and how many kids you have and how, many, how young they all were when you got married. And they take all this, these numbers and data, and they put it into this algorithm, and then spit out some numbers for you. And here's some interesting numbers that came out about our family. They suggest that when I die, if I live to the average age of a man in our world today, if I live to that age, then I will have roughly 84 biological descendants that I will see in my lifetime. That's not including their spouses, just my biological offspring. But if you push that number out to 200 years from today they think that I will have about 5,460 biological descendants. And if you go even further to 330 years from today, they believe that I will have 597,329 biological descendants, each one of them having a part of me in them. Parents, there will be people alive a century from today that don't know your name, that don't even realize that you are related to them or that you ever existed, and they will still do things that you do because you did them today. The things that we do trickle down through the future. They are going to inherit practices and habits and traditions from you. There are no unimportant days. Your legacy for your kids should consistently be something that points your children to the gospel. There is no way that you can save your children by forcing them to become Christians. There's nothing you can do to make them get saved. But what you can do is you can foster a gospel-centered household. And dads, that is what we are called to do. And almost every problem that we see happening with Joseph in this text is because that is the opposite of what his father did. So let's create in our households little family churches, places where we focus our heart and our life on the gospel every day. I know that I'm talking to parents. In other words, I'm talking to people who are probably some combination of exhausted and confused and heartbroken and bitter 
and simply feeling like they have absolutely nothing they can do. They're completely in over their heads. But I have good news for you, parents. You are in over your head, but Christ is beside you. He is with you. You are not parenting alone. You're not going to be a perfect dad, or you're not going to be a perfect mom. There's no such thing. You are never going to be absolutely perfect, but God's grace is present in every interaction that you have with your kids. He is available for you. The power of Christ is with you. When you feel like, I just don't think I can get through this, you can not because of your strength, but because you're weak and Christ is strong and he is with you. As a believer, his strength is there for you. His wisdom is available to you. So do not trust in your own strength. Don't just go to the, the books. I mean, there's a lot of great ones. Like every time there's a problem, you don't just open up shepherding a child's heart and figure out what do I do now? But when there's that challenge in your heart, trust in Christ. Go to the Lord who gives grace. Christ will help you raise your children in the way that they should go. And finally, before we move on to our second point, notice that Joseph had a terrible example set for him, yet by the grace of God, he does not imitate that. By the grace of God, Joseph was very different than his father or even his grandfather or great-grandfather in these ways. You don't have to fail in the same ways that your father or your mother or your parents did. Your children also, likewise, are not destined to the cycle of sin the same ways that you have fallen. God gives grace, and he breaks those cycles. So listen, maybe you're here and you're saying, I am a dad, but now I'm a grandfather too. My kids are out of the house. I lost my chance to do what you're saying to do. I missed it. Well, pray, because God can restore what the the years that the locusts have eaten. He can restore all the ways that we have failed. Trust me when I say that, yes, you probably have failed in many ways. So have I. As a father, we all make terrible failures. But I can tell you this, that God gives grace far beyond our capabilities. So seek restoration. Seek a right relationship with them. Do what you can now to be a godly example. But also, if you're saying, I missed my chance, Trust that God is a greater example than you will ever be of what a good father is like. Point number two, prejudice. Let's take a little deeper now on why Joseph's brothers hated him so much. Verse three says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. Not only this, but Joseph was the son of Jacob's favorite wife who has now died. He loved Rachel the most, and now Rachel has two children. She died, of course, after Benjamin was born. But then verse 4 adds, But when his brothers saw their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Some of you in the room have been to Israel. Even those who have not been to Israel should know the answer to this question. How do people who speak Hebrew greet one another? What is the word they use? Shalom, you know this, right? But shalom means? It means peace. What it's saying here when it says that they can't speak peacefully to one another is probably saying they can't even greet him. Good morning. They can't even do that. They can't even have a conversation with him. There's nothing that they want with him. They, they absolutely despise him and want nothing to do with him. But why? Now, this may come as a surprise to you, but I am not a fan of high fashion. Um, I don't like to dress up that much. I am very comfortable in shorts and a t-shirt. 
lounging around, writing a sermon in my office downstairs, sitting on my couch at home, or climbing a tree in the backyard to cut off the limbs or whatever. That's the kind of clothes I like to wear. That is how I genuinely prefer to dress. However, what is very strange is my children are quite the opposite. Perhaps it's a byproduct of growing up on Long Island, but they love to dress up with fancy clothing. Most particularly, my oldest son, Asaph, he loves to dress up. I went to a seminary where they had bow tie Tuesdays. Most schools have taco Tuesdays. My school had bow tie Tuesdays. And I'm probably the only student that never wore one that whole time I was there. But my son, Asaph, loves bow ties. Now, what would it be like in my household if I got all of my kids' clothes from My Unique, that gigantic bazaar thrift store on Hempstead Turnpike, where we get most of their clothes now, except Asaph. Every time I got a paycheck, I drive into you know, Manhattan and I go to Fifth Avenue with him and buy him designer clothes with the tags on them and we get clothes for him but not the other kids. Of course, it doesn't even matter if Athanasius doesn't like clothes, the fancy clothes. He will care because I am showing special care to one over the others. That's a problem with favoritism. However, what's going on here with Joseph goes much deeper than just a nice piece of clothing. And I want you to know that although it's presented often as a technicolor coat, right? It's a coat of many colors. That may not be what the word means. In fact, it's probably not what the word means. Actually, most Hebrew scholars don't think that this means the coat had multiple colors. It's almost impossible during their day to weave a coat with multiple uh, kinds of dye in it. So it's probably not a multicolored coat. Linguists and biblical scholars argue this is probably better translated as a royally ornamented coat. In other words, like you see people that have uh, tassels on their shoulder or they have all kinds of different fancy things. Like if you if you watch the royal wedding, they have all these clothes that have different kinds of stitching in them that make them look royal and powerful. That's probably more close to what it looks like. This term is only used one other time in the entire Old Testament. And the only time it's used is to declare that a prince is the one who's actually the authoritative prince who's going to take over the kingdom. It's to show that this one who is royal is the authority over the others who are also royal. It is not necessarily meant to be a multicolored robe, but a robe of royalty. And this is Jacob's way of declaring that Joseph is my official heir to the household. In other words, when he says, this is my son, he's saying, he's in charge. If I die, you look to him. And that is what made the brothers hate Joseph so much, so much. Remember, Reuben was the firstborn, but he lost his position as the one to inherit authority because of his infidelity with Bilhah, the mother of Dan and Naphtali. And the next two in line were Simeon and Levi, but they were likewise disqualified because remember what they did when Dinah had that whole situation with the Shechemites? They said to the Shechemites, you know what? You can marry Dinah, no problem. You just have to get circumcised first. And then the whole town gets circumcised. And while the men were on the third day recovering in their beds, these two guys go in and kill all of them. Therefore, they lost their place because that is not justice. That is violence and evil. And Jacob now jumps all the way down to his 11th child, Joseph, and made him, the son of his favorite wife, the heir. But notice that God also gets involved here in a very interesting way. Instead of calming the tensions, God actually comes in and intensifies this family feud by giving Joseph a pair of dreams that indicate that he is going to rule over his brothers. That's just not dad's position, guys. God said so too. 
Joseph encountered a lot of dreams in this story that we're going to see this summer, and they always come in pairs, showing that they truly originate from God. This is why we read in verse 5, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And again in verse 8, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And further down in verse 11, it says, And his brothers were jealous of him. Jump down now to verse 18. It says, They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And notice what it says here. And we will see what will become of his dreams. These dreams are a sticking point for them. You can almost feel the heat of their anger in these words. Why do they hate his dreams? What's the big deal? They're just dreams. I have weird dreams all the time. I have crazy things that go on in my brain. And I don't tell people about them because literally they mean nothing and nobody cares. But they care about these dreams. Why? Because they know that they were given by God. They know that God has declared, you will bow down to him. In other words, they know that God has chosen Joseph rather than them. And in their hearts, they are declaring, I will not have that man to rule over me. They cannot stand the thought of Joseph being their master. They would never bend their knee to him. And they would not have batted an eye at killing him to end God's plan. So they were filled with rage. And they would have beat him to death right there. It says that they see him, and then they have this long conversation. I think, and some scholars believe, that the way they could identify him from a long distance was probably from the ornamentation on his cloak. They see him, and they see like a flashing. Maybe there's some some metal on his cloak, or maybe they saw it if it was multicolored. That Oh, look at that guy coming. That must be Joseph. Let's kill him. And now as they see him coming near, their plan is they are going to destroy this brother's life. In verse 21 it says, But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand. Why? To restore him to his father. Now we find out later in this chapter, remember what happens when he comes back and sees the pit and it's empty? He tears his clothes. Why does Reuben care so much about this situation? It doesn't mean that he actually cares for Joseph. As we'll find out several chapters later, the reason that Reuben wanted to do this was because he believed the way back into his father's good graces, the way to cover up for the sin that he committed with Bilhah, was to actually save the one that Jacob loved the most. If he could just protect Joseph and give him back to his dad and say, those other brothers were going to kill him, don't let him go out there again, this is dangerous for him, I protected him, I saved his life, you should now love me. He thought he could buy his father affection and now he comes back and sees it's gone and he says what's going to happen to me now his interest was not joseph his interest was for himself so they threw joseph into a pit which is probably a dry cistern notice it says there's a lot of pits in that area and in verse 25 it says they sat down to eat wow they throw him into a pit and then they take a break for lunch Later in the story, Genesis chapter 42, verse 21, we hear the brothers say, Then they said to one another, In truth, 
we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come, come upon us. They looked at Joseph, threw him into a pit, and then they probably heard him screaming for help. Can you imagine him being in that empty pit? We don't know what was in there. These cisterns would often fill up with rats and snakes and scorpions and all sorts of things that would try to get out of the heat of the day, and they would go live in there. And he knew, these brothers hate me. They have seen what they did to the Shechemites. They know these are violent, evil men. He has no idea what's coming for him, and he is probably begging for mercy, calling for help. But the brothers just keep eating their sandwich, completely unfazed by his pleas. They don't care. In verse 26, we read, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it to us if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? We've got to make some money out of this deal. If we we just throw him in the pit and, 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 and let him die down there, we get nothing. If we just kill him or feed him to an animal, we get nothing out of it. But if we sell him, at least we will get a slave's price of 20 pieces of silver. Then they crafted an elaborate scheme to make it look like an animal had devoured him, and they lied to their father to the point they literally committed. Can you, can you imagine? When somebody commits a homicide, they usually try to do it secretly where nobody knows because the more people know, the more likely you're going to tell. These brothers must have committed all of them together to say, we will not tell anyone this has happened for the rest of our lives. We are committing to secrecy that we have murdered our brother. And now they haven't murdered him, but now we are committing to secrecy that we have sold him as a slave. But now Judah's like, well, let's at least make some money off the deal. And let's lie to dad. And it says that his father really believed that he's going to die because of his sorrow. It says that he said, I'm going to go down to Sheol, which means the grave, after my son, mourning. I am so sad, I'm just going to die. By God's grace, that doesn't, doesn't happen, at, the, at least at this point. And there's a lot more that we could cover here, but we're going to jump for now all the way down to point number three, which is providence. The brothers thought they had won. Victory is ours. The brother is gone. Joseph is out of our hair. They believed that they had caused these dreams sent by God to be overthrown. Let's see what becomes of these dreams now, they said. Little did they know that they were playing right into the very hand of God. Their treachery was the means by which God was going to fulfill his promise. You cannot stop God. You cannot frustrate his plans. But I want you to see how everything so far, not, not just one or two things, but everything has fallen perfectly into place for this scenario to, to play out. Think about the fact that Jacob decided just randomly, you know, Joseph, I want to make sure that my bro- my, uh, your brothers are okay. Why don't you go up to Shechem and find them and make sure they're doing okay? Why does he ask Joseph to do that? Well, because they decided to go feed their sheep in Shechem, which if you know the history of what happened there, that's not a very safe place for them to be. So Jacob sends Joseph to find his brothers at Shechem, and they aren't there. So it literally says that he bumps into a guy at random who just happened to be there. And this guy just so happened to have overheard the brothers say where they were going to go. And he just so happened to know the way to Dothan. So Joseph goes, after traveling already for 50 miles, travels another 12 to 15 miles up to Dothan. And he travels there north and just so happens to come right to the place where they are, which 
if you look at a map and you, you begin to see how far he's traveling, the likelihood of bumping into them and just finding these guys grazing a group of sheep by the road is very small. And he just so happens to find them. And then the brothers happen to be right next to the largest trade route in the entire Middle East going down to Egypt. And they just so happen to find a cistern that was empty with no water in it. And they just so happen to see a caravan traveling down the trade route that was willing to buy Joseph. Make no mistake, God was working in every last detail of Joseph's life. And God is working in every detail of your life as well. There are no accidents. There are no coincidences. God is orchestrating events in your life far beyond your scope of understanding. And at the end of Joseph's story, he is able to look back at this and say in Genesis 50 verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Probably the most clear statement in the entire Old Testament about the sovereignty of God working its way out in our lives. Truly, God's sovereign hand was setting up something that nobody in this story could have ever predicted or expected. Which brings us now to our fourth and final point, the main point, the heart of the text, prelude. We've just begun now to scratch the surface of the story of Joseph. There are many things that we are going to discover over the course of the summer, but it's amazing that this character is highlighted so much. There are more spoken words recorded from Joseph than any other character in the Old Testament. He has the longest biography in all of Genesis. He is one of only two characters in the entire Old Testament with no sin associated with them, him and Daniel. So why is his story even here? Why doesn't the book just end with the last patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why does it go on to cover the life of Joseph? The answer is simply this. Joseph is one of the clearest ways that the Old Testament foreshadows Jesus. The 14 chapters we're studying this summer will focus on Joseph as their main character, but Jesus is always the main point. And Joseph's life is intentionally designed to point forward to the greater Joseph, Allow me to point out a few similarities, but make no mistake, Jesus is always the superior in these examples. Both of these men, Joseph and Jesus, were stripped of their cloaks. Both were betrayed for a handful of coins. Now you might notice that the number is different, 20 for Joseph and 30 for Jesus, but that's just due to inflation. The fact of the matter is, you might laugh, but this is the truth. What is the slave's wage in Joseph's day? The cost of a slave, obviously, is 20 pieces of silver because he was sold as a slave. The reason Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver is because that was a slave's wage in his day. They were both sold for a slave's wage. Both were falsely accused and were arrested. Both were humiliated for a time and then highly exalted. But more than Joseph, Jesus came to his own and they received him not. More than Joseph, Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Joseph was sold into slavery. Jesus volunteered to be the servant of all. Joseph was forced to serve in Potiphar's house, but Jesus willingly took off his cloak, wrapped it around himself, and got down and washed his disciples' feet like a slave. Joseph was sentenced to prison, but God ultimately brought him back out. Jesus was sent into the teeth of death itself, but the the grave could not hold him, and he likewise came out. As we see in the story today, Jesus and Joseph were both laid in a pit, 
but by God's grace, both of them came out alive. Over the summer, we will find many similarities where Joseph points us forward to the true suffering servant who will rise to royalty. But let me land on one final comparison for the, mo- for the morning. Earlier, I quoted for you part of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, which says, you know, that God is sovereignly working, even though you're trying to do something evil. Let me read for you the whole thing. As for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. Why? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The literal Hebrew wording of this is to say that many would be saved alive. Remember, Joseph did not suffer for his own sin. But we saw earlier he experienced the consequences of sin of others. Even so, Joseph suffered so that he might save alive many. Not only the household of Israel, think about this, not only the household of Israel were saved from the famine, but also the Gentiles in Egypt and all the surrounding nations were fed because of Joseph. Because of what he did, all were protected from this famine. I think it's difficult for us to comprehend what famine is. We live in a world where we don't see food being grown. If, if there's a, a drought, we just buy food from some other country where there's not a, a drought right now. That doesn't happen in the ancient world. If there is a famine, people starve to death. There is no food anywhere. Everyone suffers. And here, we see that they are saved alive only because of the suffering of Joseph. In a far greater and more eternal way, Jesus suffered because of the sins of others. He never suffered for his own. In fact, he picked them up intentionally and he bore them on his shoulders at the cross and he died so that many might be saved from their sins. Not only the household of Israel, but just like we see with Joseph, it goes far beyond. That Christ died so that not only the household of Israel, but also the Gentiles might come into his family. Brothers and sisters, I will close with this. Jesus is worthy of your adoration and praise. And I'm praying that this summer that we spend with Joseph will make that even more evident as we grow in faith and that we trust in God as our sovereign king who works all things together for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we come together today recognizing that you are God and you are king and you are ruler over us. But Lord, I think as we say those words, sometimes we fail to recognize what they mean that you are sovereignly controlling and orchestrating and ruling over all of the circumstances and details of our lives. God, I pray that we would trust you, that we would recognize your love and your grace, that we would see exactly what we are called to do, how we are called to live, and that we would be upright in the face of great danger, just like Joseph, much more so, just like Jesus. God, I pray that when we fail, when we fall, when we have challenges that we, we just don't think that we can surpass, Lord, that we would lean on the grace of Christ, that we would trust in you, that we would recognize that we desperately need you. And Lord, I pray knowing that there are many in this room who have suffered over the last month in various ways. There are many who have experienced external pressure, external hardship. Lord, I pray just like Joseph, we would be able to stand firm trusting in the hope of the promise of Jesus Christ. Just as, uh, as Pastor Schultz said earlier today, Lord, that hope is not a question mark. It is something that we trust in. We know the end of the story. Joseph did not fully know the end of the story, yet he had those dreams that he trusted in and believed that you would eventually raise him up. 
Lord, we don't know the end of our story on this earth, but we know what happens after we close our eyes in death. We know that we will reign victorious with you and that we will live forever with you, worshiping you for all time. So God, I pray that we would trust in that, trust in you, and recognize that you are doing all that you are doing in our lives for a purpose. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.